Hello and welcome to the fourth episode in season three of The Prestige. We are a podcast all about films, cinema, people who make movies, people who watch movies and how and why we make movies. Each week we pick a film, we talk about that film, we review that film and we kind of discuss some of the the themes and motifs that the film has. And as always we end the show with our recommendations for further reading, as we call it, following this week's film. Before we kick off with our movie of the week, we'll have a little catch up on what else we've been watching in the interim. There's been a while since we spoke, Sam, given you've had the audacity to go off and get married and have a have a life that isn't the show. Yes. So what have you been watching, if anything? Um well, as as you said, how how dare I go and get married to other things? Um I have watched a couple of things. We rewatched Trainwreck the other night, which we watched in the cinema together and enjoyed, and watched it together at home and still enjoyed. Um, I don't think I need to say very much about it. Rob and I both talked about how much we liked it at the time. There's a um, small batch episode that I'll put a link to in the description where we talked lots about it, but still only got a good thing to say about it. Mm. Fair enough. I have uh, this week watched Baywatch, not not the seminal '90s TV show, but the uh, 2017 reboot sequel, whatever whatever you want to call it, uh, starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson and Zach High School Musical Zephron. And the question is, is it any good? Yes, it is. Like it, it's not. It's not going to win awards. It's not going to you know inspire anyone to into the viewing. But you mean when you've got People in the lead, like Zac Efron and The Rock, who are renowned for their charisma, it's it's going to be watchable. Some of the CGI is really quite um, laughable. You really would expect a better bit of it. Some of the CGI is bad, and the plot doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's fun. You know, the, the, watching the two of them spark with each other is fun, certainly. And they both quite seem game for a laugh in terms of mockery of their public personas. Uh, you're well aware you're watching Zac Efron and The Rock rather than Mitch and, and Brody. Um, but it was a very fun evening uh, watching it. So it's not it's not high art in any way, but it's certainly um, certainly a, a good fun two hours. But I'm well aware that a lot of the, the critical reception of that film is the other way around, and it was it took a lot of flack. Um, and I can't uh, I can't. De- blame them for that it is not a not an amazing film but it, it's far funner than people want it to be right very good well this week we are um bringing to a close our season of Catherine bigelow films um as we're doing all season in season three we're taking it director by director um the final Catherine bigelow film in our season Following on from um, K-19 Widowmaker last week uh, is 2008's The Hurt Locker. Welcome to Camp Victory. Oh, Camp Victory? This was Camp Liberty. Oh, no, they changed that about uh, a week ago. Victory sound better. All right. So what do you got? The car has been parked illegally. The suspension is sagging. There's definitely something heavy in the trunk. Interesting. What's he doing? I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die comfortable. How many bombs have you disarmed? 873. 873. You're a wild man, you know that? The Hurt Locker 
the last Catherine Bigelow film, which we look focuses on uh, American bomb squad in Iraq and their new leader, um, played by Jeremy Renner, who turns out to be something of a maverick. There is support from Anthony Mackie, Brian Geraghty, even at one point Ray Fiennes, but this is essentially a Jeremy Renner film. The Locker follows uh, Renner's character, Staff Sergeant Will James, through a number of episodes involving Iraqis and US soldiers as they and we in the audience search for some sort of motivation in what he does. Mm. Your thoughts, Rob? I saw this film when it first came out. I mean, it was amongst all the uh, Oscar hype that it got. And I didn't connect with it then, I must say. Since then, I have had the pleasure of working with some of the crew who made this film. Um, and I thought... I was intrigued to see what would happen when I rewatched it for this week. Unfortunately, I'm still sitting in the same place I was before, where this film really fails to connect with me on any kind of level. I mean, technically, it's a fine film. It's well made. I can't begrudge it any kind of uh, filmmaking um, sort of prowess. I think my inherent problem comes down to the main character, James. I think that he is an unrepentant... Yes. In my mind, doesn't make him an interesting character. He isn't, you know, we, we don't explore, there's no exploration of why he has this kind of bizarre death which he has, um, or the reasons why he has. He's just just a, a bit of a d- And I didn't find him watchable. I didn't think, uh, uh, we, we, I mean, Brenner is a character, actor who we discussed in the past liking. But I've, having watched this again, I, I wonder whether he isn't a leading man. Sounds horrible to say at times, but he's mm. he's a very good supporting actor, uh, particularly in the Marvel world. He seems to do some great things there, but he doesn't seem to have the same charisma to pull it off. In the same way that Mackie, who who plays his um his uh, specialist here, is certainly more watchable and more charismatic than him. But even mm. there, I just the three main guys, I didn't connect with any of them at all. I didn't connect with the story they were line they were doing. Um, personally. Watching it back this time was was a hard slog to keep going through. But each their own. Sam, what do you think? Uh, yeah, it's interesting you said that because one of the notes I made fairly early on is why is James so insistent on putting them all in danger by using the suit wanker? And it, it, he just is. He's hmm. just like... I, I agree with you. There is just no... It's frustrating the extent to which there is no real explanation for Renner's character, and sometimes, sometimes that's that's an absolutely fine thing. I come back to, I suppose, what my teachers told me at school about writing is that if you're writing a story, it's fine for the audience to be kept in the dark, but you have to know. So you have to know a character's motivation. You have to know where the narrative is going. And I didn't get that impression here. I didn't feel that there was any reason for Renner doing what he did. Other than he just liked defusing bombs. So, yeah. I think 
they, they, there are lots of lots of good things about this film. We'll go on to talk about those in a minute. But I, I think my my overall reaction to this film is is fairly lukewarm, as you was. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. As I say, it was technically fine, but it just kind of it didn't connect with me. And I think I kind of you can see what they're trying going for in the idea of you know, the effect of war on man um, and how we all react to that and obviously the three main characters all have differing reactions to to the the uh to the theater of war that they're in um and they as the film plays out they all kind of come bubble up and come to the fore but i don't know i've just i've just seen these things done better Mm. um now personally for me i i uh and my my view on this is probably a little bit of a biased view on this um i lay most of the blame for this out the writer mark bowl i don't think he's a very good writer i i, I see his his fingerprints on this and i think that Catherine bigler who's seen other films can really bring a good technical eye to films and certainly a, a nuanced view to these things um but as you say as the writer you should know why people are the way they are and it feels here that he doesn't Hmm. Yeah, I'm just looking at what what else he's done. He seems to be Gatham Bigelow's favourite. Yes, there's certainly a a a, a working relationship there. Hmm. I do think then mo- moving on to speak more positive about the positively about the film. Um, I I very much enjoyed the sparseness to the film, and. We we've talked about this before with other Bigelow films, particularly with with Point Break right at the beginning, that you get thrown into this action and there's no exposition, there's no explaining anything about what's going mm. on. There's something very lean and sparse about the way you're just expected to keep up with the the specialist diffusal squad right at the beginning. Um, I did enjoy that. I I also enjoyed the fact that there's there's a I mean a sense of foreboding throughout and certainly when James's predecessor gets killed right at the beginning, um I should have said spoiler warning before that but it is in the first two minutes, um there is a sense of foreboding and it's it's a justified sense of foreboding because it turns out the trigger man is is in the wings, um. But there is a sense of foreboding throughout the opening, even when you have some like Renner diffusing bomb for the first time that you see, and there is an an Iraqi watching him, and there's a sense of foreboding about the way that he is seen, and the the fact that it's viewed from the perspective of of this potential trigger man i did i did even even though that foreboding doesn't actually resolve into anything i did enjoy that the the way that there was foreboding throughout this and i think some of that speaks to what you're saying about the sense of war in this film the the way in which this film is trying to give you an impression of what it is what it is like to be permanently on edge to be to be at war Mm. And when you have, I mean, there's so much untranslated Arabic in this, and there's just, I mean, it, 
in a way, the audience is kind of overwhelmed in the same way as the characters are. Um, the audience gets the idea. I mean, I don't want to say the audience. I mean, a Western non-Arabic speaking audience, which is the predominant um, demographic this this film is aiming for. But that audience is is just completely overwhelmed by all this Arabic. That's in in the same way that the the soldiers are overwhelmed as well. Yeah, I think you're right. That, that kind of, I don't know, the tension and the and the sort of the oppressive nature of of the world that they're in, you mm. you do feel that. And I think one of the um, to talk about sort of the technicalities behind it a lot is that there's a lot of these shots, especially early on, of, of the rubbish strewn streets, and you're always feeling like they're you're, all the buildings are looking down on you. That the uh, everyone, all the locals are looking down at people. It's interesting that all the bomb threats to deal with it early on are on the ground, surrounded by these high-rise buildings, mm. um, and it's kind of this kind of feeling of encroachment. And I think you, you've got to kind of see that balance between their roles as invaders and oppressors, if you want to take that view of it. Um, but over there, they are in many ways the oppressed as well. Mm. You know they are facing a guerrilla army who know who know all the um, areas and all that sort of stuff. So it's it's kind of interesting reversal of fortune in there. I think I mean it's not too far to push to say that Catherine Bigelow is coming at this uh, probably an anti-war perspective, certainly a a left-leaning liberalist perspective on war. Yeah, and trying to square in many ways a a liberal viewpoint with the necessity for warfare. Yeah. Um, and the betrayal of of the locals, be it the um, the kid in Beckham or the insurgents or any of that kind of stuff, um, it was very uh, interesting. But I think the film, if I kind of to jump to sort of it's natural a little bit, it felt more like a series of little vignettes rather than an overarching story. It doesn't feel well. There is a narrative. It doesn't feel to have like a cohesive story in any kind of, kind of respect. Mm. Yeah, it did feel, and and you got that with these with the timestamps moving through uh, Broward Company's um, period in rotation in in Iraq. That it, it felt like this this was a snapshot of James's life, and then sixteen days later there was another snapshot of James's life. Mm. You're right. It was it was very much focused on. Yeah, it was focused on providing a sort of a series of snapshots of the major characters, rather than necessarily a narrative, a story, a case of whole. I think in the sort of the filmography of of Catherine Bigelow, it's very easy to sort of draw that sort of a, a a brackets around this and Zero Dark Thirty as as a pairing. Mm. Um, up at this point, as we've discussed, she kind of jumps genres and she jumps. Um, sort of time frames and styles, but that these two kind of clearly come together. Um, and we've talked, I think we talked about it, I say we talked about it last week, we talked about it two years ago when we talked about Zero Out 30, but obviously that came out last week as well on the, on the show. Um, but the idea of individuals versus the system. Mm. Um, and for me, I felt that we discussed this when we talked about Zero Out 30, that uh, the character played by Jessica Satan that is this individual against the system. Uh, trying to fight for her corner, and there it works. There you have the feeling of being on her side and kind of this fighting this religious thing. Whereas here, 
view individualism of James versus the more structured um, characters around him, his, his team, doesn't you don't end up siding with the individual, shall we say? Hmm. One one way in which one one way in which I can get on board that here is is the way that um, Gethin Bigler has this speciality that she's done in in lots of her films, and we've looked at quite a few in the past month, and as you said, two years ago. Um, it's the subverting of expectations. It's not doing predictable things, not doing narratologically predictable things. And when I mean the the relationship between Sambon and James is a good example that when Sambon says, James, do I have what it takes? And Rena says, Yeah, no. Mm. Hell and, no, I think the response, yes. It, hell no. And you think, okay, by the end of this film, definitely Sanborn's going to be in the suit and saving James from something. And it doesn't turn out like that because mm. that's not the way that Bigelow's mind works. And the thing also, also right at the end, when, again, James is Sanborn talking, James, I mean, they're talking about the consequences, the fact that James doesn't think about the consequences, and it seems like he's about to say, he's about to give some sort of insight. And then it cuts, and it's the end of rotation, and it's back to James in the supermarket. Mm. And you you think, well, it, that's a little, that's the sort of frustration that I am quite impressed by, because that's the sort of, Catherine Bigelow knowing that subverting expectations is 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 her thing, and it's, it's a good way of kind of showing that... Oh, Maybe there is something about war that can't be understood. I mean, I, and it's you know, there's, there's there's this reoccurring character of a um of a psychologist, uh, one of the mm. psychologists, um, and whilst his story kind of goes somewhere and he ends up being more of a um inciting incident than anything else, he does he his early conversations with with a team are about you know you don't know what it's like there you don't know what it's like either, even though he's in the army and he's over there. He doesn't know what it's like in in the hurt locker, as it were. Um, he doesn't know what it's like in the in in the arena in which they work, um, mm. and, and it feels like they're trying to explore that. But as I say, it doesn't really kind of land too well for me personally. Well, I was just thinking it. Another thing, well, something that does land about this film, are the are the visuals. Um, I was thinking about. Uh, just sort of occasions when you don't see the violences of war and so for example when Sanborn shoots someone from a distance and all that you see is a bullet casing falling in slow motion onto dust Mm. and it mirrors other occasions in the film where that has happened you think well some sometimes this film does work and maybe as you said maybe it's because we can lay the blame at Mark Ball's door and the cinematography and the direction is good uh, mm. but it does seem to be there there are some good graphic moments in this film and the problems we have has to do with the narrative see this is bizarre like the shot in which you have that slow motion shot of the, of the bullet casing landing on the floor i i've made a note of what the hell was that shot <laughs> um, because now, <laughs> um, from my point of view, of, uh, from the filmmaking point of view, films should have a style, 
a, a good film has a style. Sometimes that style isn't like the Marvel style, which is a very plain, bland style, but it's the style. Um, and things like the weirder things like Fincher or Razorhead or any of them have their own style. And the feel, the style of these, this film particularly, and you can see it again in Zero Out of Thirty, is handheld. It's rough and ready. It's closer to a documentary style filmmaking than anything else. Mm, uh, that's yeah. where it's taking its points from. That kind of handheld, you're in the action style. And then out of nowhere, we get this slow motion, heavily graded, high contrast, with a, a musical sting going with it of this bouncing. Shell casing, and it's just like, what, what the hell are you doing? This is not. This is nothing like any shot around it. It's not like anything we've seen before in this film. Um, it just felt so out of place. And even the early slow mo, we got things like the the bomb going off and and the the um and the first team leader dying. That is in slow mo, but it doesn't have that same kind of shimmery, shiny action movie feel. It felt more like a Michael Bay shot. It felt like it belonged in Bad Boys, rather than belonging in this kind of you know, tangible and real the style they're trying to present here. It really, it really knocked me out of the narrative. I see. I think that's the intention of this, and knocking you out of the narrative is the point because that shows you that there is something really traumatic going on, and someone has just died, and something really terrible has just happened and that's the sort of thing that happens in war and war is not a video game as you see you see some of them playing earlier early on it's not just a, a classic video shoot 'em up it's something serious that will knock you out of your comfort zone i think that's i mean it, it may not entirely work stylistically as you suggested but i think what that shot is trying to do is is sort of pulling you out of that documentary style and saying, look, focus on the fact that this is confusing. War is like this. I, I will happily believe you when you say that was intention. To me, it felt misplaced. It, the film is supposed to be about the effect of war on man. And obviously that, that, that whole scene actually has an effect on the team. The three of them go through something there that mm. leads to a scene in which they kind of bond. Um, afterwards, and that kind of goes its own way as well. It just felt like I don't know what you're trying to say. Like, what, like if if you presume that everything is a choice, I didn't get what they were trying to say from that. And like you post post game explaining what they're trying to do, fair enough. But I think if you can't justify it when you're doing it, hmm. then then you're gonna, you're gonna lose someone. Um, so yeah, that that that, that interesting that, that that worked for you, and it really didn't work for me. Yeah. I did think, just just wanted to mention one more thing is, and this this goes back to your summary of James right at the beginning, and you think, well, those people who are being natives towards him are totally justified. There was that scene when, um, what's his name, Eld- is it Eldridge, mm-hmm. the specialist, is being he's been shot. James has shot him, and he's been loaded onto a helicopter. And he turns to James and is abusive towards him and says, we just did this so that you could get your adrenaline fixed. And you think, well, yeah, that's completely it. So I think there there are moments like that where you think, and this goes back to not really engaging with the character, not really understanding why the character is doing what he's doing. Because, yeah, it's, he's behaving a little bit like a teenager. 
Mm. It's a little bit sort of yes, he's 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 getting his adrenaline fix, which when you're playing computer games in your room with a mate is absolutely fine. But when it results in people getting killed and or having their femurs shattered in nine different places, it's something different. And I don't get the sense that James ever understands that. No, I think I mean it's interesting that early on you do see Eldritch playing a video game. Um, mm. And those that you know the video game, he was playing a game called Gears of War, um, which is an incredibly violent um, video game, um, renowned for it, it, its blood and its gore, and it, it's kind of soldiers fighting against an, a noble enemy. Um, it is a it's a very very violent uh, game. So it, it's interesting that they, they chose that game as mm. the um, as the as the game he played, rather than something more recognisable like. Um, Call of Duty, which is many the um, sort of often the standard for for video games. Mm. So before we kind of move on to our um, our recommendations for this week, we have kind of completed our uh, our Catherine Bigelow month. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on her filmography as a whole as we've seen it. Yeah, I I was thinking about this. So I was thinking about um, more just the individualism that we've explored with. James at the end here, but it seems to me that throughout her career, what Bigelow is doing is trying to explore something about her place in the film industry. So you had Point Break at the beginning, and it was very much about a woman in a man's world. And you have K-19, which is about togetherness and yet you've got to negotiate various relationships in order to to overcome something. And, and it felt, I mean, I've never worked in a film, but it feels to me that there's there's something, something to do with coming together in order to create something mm. in, in producing a film as well. And in here you have, I mean, we... We never really understand why James does what he does, but we we know that he is an individual, and that's something that we kind of we can kind of see Catherine Bigelow exploring as well, um, and that that is why I think that I mean, like you, I wasn't a huge fan of this, but I mean, I am so glad that this won over Avatar because this is head and shoulders above Avatar. And I think it's her the the way that she is prepared to explore her own identity through film that allows her to do that. How about you? Um, for me, it felt I suppose you look at her, her filmography as, as we dealt with it is this idea of, and we talk about a lot through individualism versus the collective. Mm. And if we look at the film, we talked about this over here. You've got you've got Point Break that is talking about these two agents going against the. FBI sort of structure and finding his own way with Brody um, and um, the sort of robbers and finding that world there. You've got K-19, which is all about individualism versus collective and obviously the Russian, the idea of the collective and doing it for Mother Russia. Um, and then obviously this week you've got that. And then in 0 30, there's a taking again into the idea of this single person fighting against or fighting within this bureaucratic structure. And it feels like she's trying to look at the, the power of the individual, the power of the, the person, and get in the face of faceless 
um, in, fa- in, in the face of it, in, in this faceless bureaucracy, faceless, faceless uh, sort of meat grinder of war. It's all about how to find the individual in amongst this and, and what the individual means in, in a larger sense. Um, mm. And I, I, I will happily take that to where you took it to the idea of the individual. Because obviously, the director often gets a lot of the credit for films. But I will testify that when it comes to films, you've got three hundred people, four people making that film. Mm. Um, and it, you know, film is one of the very, very, very few art forms where you cannot do it alone. There is no, there is no auteur in film. Like every every movie is a collaborative effort. There is no way to do it that isn't collaborative. Um, and I think there's questions around what it means to be a film director in the world in which particularly films getting more and more specialised. How what is it, what is a director when you have all these um, all these large collaborative efforts? So I, I, I think you're right. I, I, I'm happy to tell you where you took it to, but I think there's there's questions around the um, individual purpose that she's trying to answer. I will say one one last thing. We need to put in the link for this is. Dustin Hoffman's acceptance speech from the Oscars in 1980 when he won for Kramer vs. Kramer is just the the best three minutes ever on that collaborative effort and actors not even working in the same film but people this is this is a collaborative industry and there are no winners or losers there are no, no individuals so yeah that's that's a great one so, Sam, do you have some recommendations for us? Yes. Um, my first recommendation is not solely to annoy Rob, I promise you. Um, it's a it's a film that predated Hurt Locker by quite a way. It's, it's not Auntie Minghella's 1996 film, The English Patient. Now, there is a lot more... Um, the re- the reason for the connection here is is the theme of precision of bomb disposal, um, and also of of the individual. I suppose there is a lot more in the book than in the film. Um, there is a whole sort of narrative strand that focuses on Kip, who's a a Indian sapper, Indian bomb disposal expert, and it is is the nature of of big budget films sometimes they will focus more on the main narrative um but actually the main narrative has Ray Fiennes in it who's in this film anyway so there there are two two reasons there for linked to the English patient fair enough uh my second one is and you've mentioned we haven't talked very much about Sanborn anti Mackey um and you mentioned how he was a more charismatic screen presence than Rather, and I would agree with you. Um, he links to a film from five years ago. How was 2012 now? Five years ago. But anyway, Anthony Mackie was in the film Man on a Ledge, which was tight and enjoyable and not too long I mean it's an hour and 40 minutes it was just a fun thriller and I went to see it in the cinema on my own I was working away from home when it came out and it was 
I mean, it wasn't a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. It mm. wasn't even a particularly amazing film, but <laughs> it was just a perfect experience. It's like, this is what I want from a film. I just want an hour and 40 minutes of no-nonsense thrills. So, yes, Man on a Ledge from Fair 2012. Enough. Cool, cool. I must say, I haven't actually seen Man on a Ledge, so I'll have to take with that one. Uh, my recommendations are taking from... from once again, an actor, anthematic. So my actor is, he's in it a lot, um, but he is a recognised face, and that is uh, Guy, Ri- no, Guy Ritchie? Guy Ritchie, not the man I'm after. Uh, Guy Pierce. sorry. Um, Guy Pierce, who plays the Ill- ill-fated leader in the opening sort of sequence. And he's been in a lot of films over the years, but the one that I really, really like, and it really, really doesn't get any kind of sort of play is his 2012 film Lockout um, in many ways this is a sort of a, a low budget action film, um, he is a ex-special forces person who is sent to rescue the president's daughter when she is kidnapped on a maximum security prison that floats in space um, it is very very much like Skip New York, so much so that they were sued by Skip New York and, and lost um, it is very much in that, but Guy Pierce is very good in this. He very much nails that kind of anti-hero, don't give a crap kind of uh, sort of good guy, bad guy, shall we say? Um, so if you haven't seen Lockout, it's a very good, fun action film. Um, it's well, I often say that good fun. It is a lot better than like Baywatch. It is a good film. It's enjoyable. He's very good. Mackie Grace plays the president's daughter, and she's very good. And the bad guys um, are these psychotic ex-prisoners who break out from prison. They are very, very terrifying in terms of sort of bad guys. So if you haven't seen Lockout, and a lot of people did, it's well worth seeing if you're after a more modern version of something like Escape from New York. My thematic um, recommendation is from 2001 which was 16 years ago, um, and that is the film Black Hawk Down. Telling the tale of a Black Hawk, a helicopter that goes down in, in Somalia, um, and they have to sort of fight their way out of a heavily infested, not infested, but heavily armed Somalis that are trying to kill these uh, US soldiers. It deals with very similar things to the effect of war on man, the horrificness of war, the horrors of war. Um, and the idea of, of of one man or a team within that that world. Um, Ridley Scott with you know, leads from Josh Hartnett, Hugh McGregor, Tom Sizemore. The, the the list of people who are in this film is long, and it is it's it's filled with people who are very good at their jobs. So if you haven't seen it, it's once again it's well worth seeing. It is it deals with some of the ideas they're trying to talk about here. Is that film war isn't heroic? Was it can be heroic? It isn't by its nature inherently heroic. Um, and it's just well shot. It has that same kind of gritty in the moment feel that they went for with this film, but without, shall we say, unlikable main characters. So that is Black Hawk Down. Right, Rob, where are we going next week? So next week we're going way, way, way back. We're going back about 60 years, 70 years. Um, and we are going back to the 1948 film Drunken Angel, which was the breakout hit for infamous and renowned Japanese director Akira Kurosawa. We'll be looking at him over the next four weeks. 
Um, so if you haven't seen Drunken Angel, and many people haven't, if you want to stay with us next week, you can watch that. I'm sure it's available, I believe, Sam met me on iTunes to rent. I think so. A, d- a number of his are. Um, so. so yeah, that's that's what we'll be going. And then we'll be looking at his films over the next few weeks. Um, some you'll probably guess, some you may not. Um, and we will go from there. Until next time, you can get a hold of either of us, both of us, on Twitter at Prestige Podcast. You can find me just at Rob Kaiju. And just me at Life underscore Academic. And we're back here next week. See ya. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.